The Luminous Mind, episode 13. My main piece of advice is that you are enough. We have a a tendency, especially women, to feel that we're inadequate. And the fact of the matter is that you have life experience and you have things that you've learned about and you have things that you're excited about. Even if you don't know everything, you know something. And that something is a gift that you're giving to your students, that you're giving to your children. Benjamin Franklin once said, Do not curse the darkness, rather light a candle instead. you're ready to set your mind on fire, then prepare yourself for the Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Kathy Millar, author of Unleash Your Voice, mentors many adults and youth online in writing, public speaking, liberal arts, and life coaching. With over a dozen years of experience advising and mentoring in Commonwealth schools, she works in cooperation with LemmyMentoringTraining.com and NewCommonwealthSchools.com. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology and an MBA in finance. Kathy is the 2008 recipient of the Women in History Award from the Daughters of the American Revolution for her work in raising leaders with a passion for and dedication to America, in addition to aspiring great public speakers and debating through Unleash Your Voice seminars. She actively promotes great mentoring through her Mentoring the One seminar series and training mentors across the country. Welcome, Kathy, to The Luminous Mind. Would you briefly tell us about yourself? Sure. I live in San Diego, California, and I have six children and a great husband. Pretty happy living the sweet life. We uh, enjoy spending time together as a family, and we enjoy doing service for people, and those are the things that we enjoy doing all together. And my uh, my kids are really into music. I have lots of piano players and singers and a flute player, so we're into music too. So that's kind of my family. I guess I should say they're into music. I don't have any musical talent myself. <laughs> that's about like our uh, home. I really encouraged my children to play instruments and all of that. And so they're very musically talented. It's a skill that I cannot help them with. <laughs> yeah, I figure I pay for the lessons. That's my skill. Exactly. <laughs> so tell us about some of your passions and also your profession. Well, I'm very passionate about my profession. I'm lucky enough to have the opportunity to to live my avocation. So I, I do what I love and takes up pretty much all of my spare time. So I'm passionate about freedom. I'm passionate about people getting great education to defend it. So, for example, my my sort of touchstone quote is by Samuel Adams, and, and he said, it does not take a majority to prevail, but a tireless, irate minority, keen on setting brush fires of freedom in the minds of men. So I love teaching people how to think so that they recognize when freedom is being lost. And I love teaching people the skills of being able to write better and read better and converse better. 
So what was your personal educational experience? I had great educational experiences. I was raised in a home where education was important. Uh, I went to private schools until there were no more private schools in my in my small town. So until high school, I was in either Episcopalian or Catholic private schools. And then I went to a really good high school with you know, a focus on academics and and I did well there. I I worked in student government and that sort of thing and enjoyed that. I actually had a really great experience in formal education, to be honest. And then I went to college. I got a degree in psychology and then I did a master's degree in uh, finance. It's, you know, an MBA in finance. I have a lot of experience in the, you know, in the world of formal education and I enjoyed it very much, but I really have a powerful feeling that it wasn't where my real education happened. Even though I learned great things there and I learned a lot of skills and I'm grateful for it, I don't think my real education started until I figured out that I didn't have the ability to think outside of what the right answer was. So I feel like the education that really matters the most to me is the education that I got through reading great works and having great discussions with other people. So is that how your educational philosophy changed over time? How did it evolve? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I I had uh, every intention of of having my kids, you know, go to school and have the great experience that I did. My oldest son was not supposed to go there. He uh, he had some processing problems. I don't really like to label children in their uh, in their individuality, but he he definitely had some learning issues, and he would have he would have failed there. And so when I when I decided to homeschool him, it was not because I thought, you know, homeschooling was so much better than any other any other way of educating. It was that I knew that's what my son needed. And then it became a family culture. You know, when you when you're homeschooling and you realize the freedom that you have as a parent to teach not only the content, but the context of what you're learning about. So that's how I evolved from formal to, you know, formal education to homeschooling. And then within homeschooling, I I was drawn to Thomas Jefferson education because of that sense that I had a lot of years and I had some pieces of paper, but I didn't really feel educated. So that that was sort of the evolution there. Great. And so with your evolution, it, it kind of happened because of the desire to give each individual child the education that they needed versus doing the same thing because that's right. what you'd been taught. Okay. Yeah. I was fortunate to have been exposed to, to homeschooling before I ever decided to do it or ever even thought I would do it. So it was nice to have a little bit of background, especially when I was doing it, because it was, you know, I was homeschooling before it was cool. Like, <laughs> it was really off the beaten track when I started. And people would not only ask those famous questions like, well, what about his socialization? They would also ask questions like, well, what is that? Yeah. So it was really, really different. He's 23 now. Yeah. I should ask you, how long have you been homeschooling? Well, let's see if you count the years when you're schooling your child from uh, from birth, it's been 23 years. <laughs> if, you count, if you count when I made the decision to homeschool, I guess it would be like, 
18. Okay. Yes, and a lot of people don't realize parents have been teaching children from the time that they leave the womb. And so sometimes as parents, we don't feel like we are qualified to teach. What would you say to those parents? Well, I think it's interesting how easily we have bought into this notion that we are not enough for our own children, that we require experts. And I think it has to do with the fact that we require experts in every part of our life. When I talked earlier about freedom, this is what I'm talking about. We lose our freedom when we consider ourselves inadequate to a task. And that's just not the American way. In the early days of America, we we had a sense of individual responsibility. And certainly there was community and, and certainly there was, you know, group efforts at at education, and I'm involved in, in two of them in my own community, two similar kinds of schools called Commonwealth schools. So I'm not opposed to group group teaching either. I think it's I think it's one of the things that's made our homeschooling experience amazing is the other influence of you know other families. So anyway, the point I was trying to make is that when we believe in our own ability to educate our own children, we're actually saying, I take all of parenting. I'm not actually going to delegate part of my parenting responsibility to a nameless, faceless government. Well, and talk about mentorship and how important that might be. We definitely don't want to assume that we don't ever put our children in front of other people, but how would you go about choosing mentors for your children? That's a fabulous question because you really are doing that their whole life. My kids have had the opportunity to have some amazing mentors. And some of the things that are important to me, especially when they're young, is that those mentors have similar values in terms of supporting the values that are in my own home. So when they're a little bit older and they've had a firm foundation in their own family, then then it doesn't, you know, you can have a conversation about differences between your family and this mentor that they're going to or that they're um, being exposed to. And they're able to understand that and not be overly influenced by it. So for instance, my two oldest daughters are involved in a public school program that's basically an after school program for the arts. The oldest one is an instrumental music program and it's it's an amazing program. It's five days a week, you know, two and a half hours a day and they do all kinds of performances and she's involved in chamber music and that sort of thing. So I went and met the mentor. I you know, I went and met the man who had who had charge of that program and I could tell he was a mentor. He was interested in things other than her music, for instance. And he uh, had a whole, hey, he had a goal of broadening their horizons, and he certainly has done that for her. So my point is, is that I'm not against, you know, I'm not against formal education if it's the right thing for that particular child. So we need to find mentors in, in our in our own lives. We need to be always thinking that way, and then we also need to be able to find mentors that that help our kids with their next step. Would you recommend mentors for younger children? You mentioned you like to wait until they're older. Maybe take us from what you would suggest for the elementary ages and then through a middle school, you know, more of a scholar. 
it, just to let me back up, what I meant was older kids having mentors that maybe don't share all of your family values. Okay. Or that have a different worldview. Okay. So that's what I meant. I, those other mentors should be happening when they're past their developmental stage of figuring out who they are. It's really interesting because in order to do this program, my kids are required to go through a charter school. And the principal of that charter school is a really, you know, very different than my family kind of perspective, but he's a really nice guy and talks to me all the time about how my kids come in there. And, you know, there's a lot of alternative students, let me say, students who maybe are struggling to even graduate. And he talks about my kids and how, how they really know who they are. And they're not phased by other people's behavior, meaning like, you know, drugs and swearing and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's because they know who they are and they're old enough to evaluate those things. So the fact of the matter is my kids have been mentored by other mothers and fathers in my community from birth, quite honestly. We have a commonwealth school that starts at, you know, a nursery school, you know, it's like my kids are one years old when they start going into a classroom with, with one of the other moms. So I'm not opposed to mentors in, in younger years. I think it's just a different, a different experience, I guess. It's more like, you know, mothers raising our kids together. So what was the best advice that you ever received? Well, you're going to probably laugh at this, but I one time heard a, a speaker when I was brand new to this world of homeschooling who said, I did not sign up to be the cruise director. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because one of the things that I think burns out homeschool parents is the feeling that they have to give everything to their kids because we don't, as a general rule, delegate our parental responsibilities. It can be a little overwhelming. So I expect my kids to be able to, you know, at, at appropriate ages to be able to direct themselves. And I expect my kids to be able to be uh, engaged in something all the time. We're a very low, low screen time, low technology family. And I think it creates children that can entertain themselves, quite honestly. It's not exactly schooling advice, but it is family culture advice to me. And them being able to take on the responsibility of their education, I th think as parents in general, and then especially as homeschooling parents, sometimes we put that whole education on our own shoulders, but we really need to delegate that to our children because it's not, I mean, we've already learned, parents are always learning something new. I mean, our responsibility is to educate ourselves just like the same way our children children's responsibility should be to educate themselves, right? Absolutely. And I say that all the time to them, you know, whose education is this so that they know that it's their responsibility. And I don't care what system you use, you know, what, what method you use, your kids are going to have gaps in their education. Just like when you got out of school, you had gaps in your education and it doesn't matter if there are those gaps, if there has been instilled in that person, both a desire to learn and also the ability to, to learn. So having kids that are self-sufficient in those kinds of ways is a very valuable perspective in homeschooling. Well, and to go along with gaps, I know that in my schooling, I learned certain things, but it wasn't until there was a place in my life where I had to apply that, that I actually went back and relearned it. And so do you feel like there's different times in a person's life where they're not necessarily ready for the information and not that you don't give them that information, but they really absorb it when they have to have a place to apply that? Would you yeah, agree with that? 
Yeah, I think that making, I mean, ideally we're making the information relevant, but, you know, as they're being exposed to it, but absolutely, we, we definitely are going to are going to understand something better when, you know, when the rubber hits the road. Exactly. So I'm going to ask you the socialization question. What okay. do you think about socialization? What do you think it means to be socialized? Well, I think to be socialized is as individual as to be educated, quite honestly. I have children that run the gamut from, you know, introverted to to really, you know, some of the most extroverted people on the planet, I think. So first of all, it's different for each child, just like education is different for each child. But I do want my children to be confident that they can express themselves. And that's where my professional world and my homeschool world collide quite nicely, because the value of having kids that are confident and being able to say what they think really can't be underestimated. I work with a lot of adults and mentoring them both in their in their own education as well as mentoring them in their homeschooling. But I'm amazed when I have a a seminar. I do public speaking and debate seminars and I'm working with the adults and it's almost like group therapy. So many people have a either have a belief that nobody wants to hear what they have to say or they have had some kind of a trauma that has made it almost impossible for them or very, very difficult, I'll say. Very, very difficult for them to stand up and say say what they think. And I think that's a tragedy because every single person, your children included, my children included, have a message to give the world. And if we don't give them the content of great education and exposure to great ideas and great people, as well as the skills to accomplish them, then we failed them in that arena. So I use public speaking and why well, start you know, speaking of different stages, I start with recitation. My younger kids uh, memorize poems and not like, I'm not, you know, super Nazi about it. I'm talking about like one a month or something like that. And they memorize poems and recite them. They also give lessons in our family. And, you know, so I'm, I'm constantly just working, baby stepping them on those skills so that by the time they're in their teens or in what we call the scholar phase, they're ready for something more. And then I teach them to give great speeches. I've had so many of my students come back to me in later years and say, you know, you didn't just help me with learning how to give a speech, that class also made me more confident in regular conversations. So that's part of the socialization is being able to interact with other people and being able to have intelligent and uplifting conversation. And how do you think homeschooling actually assists children to be properly socialized in that way, to be able to discuss things with people, other people? Well, I think it starts when they're little and any mother of of small children knows that they ask a lot of questions. If I were to count the number of questions, like my youngest is nine, if I was to count the number of questions she asks me a day, I'm sure it would be 30 to 50 questions. And of course, there's moments when you can't answer them and you have to put them off. But by and large, my job is to answer their questions. And if a child in a school setting had 30 questions to ask a day, they would be considered a behavior problem. And so it's just an interesting thing, right? We have the opportunity, and I think this is the most important things we can do, is to answer their questions. Even if the answer is, I really have no idea that's a great question. 
So, you know, or go look it up together or whatever. But, but I think that that's the foundation of, of socialization is, is having your children be heard. The interesting thing about that quality of your children being heard is that that also makes them better writers. And very few people know that connection. When your children are asking you questions or when your children are telling you a story or telling you about what happened at the park and they're kind of going on and on and on, they need to be heard. They need to have the opportunity to express themselves and to be able to say what's on their mind because that's part of their learning how to think, learning how to write, learning how to speak. So really one of the best things we can do for them is listen to them. Well, and when we listen when they're young... They'll talk when they're older, right? Don't you right, think? absolutely. So. That's that's a great point. My my now twenty three year old, when he was about seventeen, I I was waiting and waiting for you know the teenage rebellion thing to happen, and and it just never did. And my friends were complaining to me about their teenagers and asking me, "What do I do about this? And what do I do about that?" And I I was like, "I don't have that problem." And so one day I asked him. I said. So Adam, tell me, why is it that you've never rebelled? You know, teenagers are typically rebellious and you've never rebelled. And he, and he said, <laughs> mom, I learned a long time ago that you know more than I do. And I'm going to be more successful if I listen to you than if I don't. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> pretty incredible. So I've kind of thought a lot about this. Do you feel like there's a difference between what we call a teenager and what we call a youth? Yeah, there's there's definitely some value in not calling them teenagers because if you've ever read the book, sorry, I can't remember. It's by two teens that are twins. Something about teen revolution or something like that. Only they anyway, they talk about the teen word and where it came from and and it's and it really is this modern phenomenon of time that's basically wasted between puberty and when you know, whenever the school system uh, is done with you. Well, and with the teen, they're trying to escape ever having to take responsibility. And some people never get out of their teen years where they're escaping responsibility. A lot of our founders, it was a privilege at 14 years old. They wanted to be mentored and to be guided so that they could join the professional world. Right. Agree? Yeah, it was. It, and it was expected. You know, if you were in the lower classes, you were apprenticed. And if, if you were lucky enough to be able to afford, you know, college and not be earning right away, it was it was expected that you were going to do something useful with those years. And now at best, you know, they're just kept busy. Yes, exactly. So what are the biggest obstacles that you you face or that you think homeschoolers in general face? I would say that most of the obstacles have to do with our expectations. If we get discouraged, it's because we expected more of either ourselves or our kids. And I think having some thoughtful considerations about what those expectations are and individualizing them to each of your children is valuable in preventing yourself from getting discouraged. I, I think, you know, having done this for so long and seeing that the end results are not what they look like in the early years, let me just say that. Exactly. My, my, uh, my kids, every single one of them, I think I deserved at least one early reader, but every single one of them is 
is a, is a late reader. And, and I, I see a lot of, you know, comments on Facebook groups and that sort of thing about, oh, my child isn't doing this or that or the other thing at this age, you know, and they want somebody to tell them that it's okay. And I guess I've already learned the lesson that it's already okay. My 14 year old said to me, yeah, I used to feel like I was so dumb because I couldn't read. And, and the other kids in my Sunday school class could read their scriptures and I couldn't. And, and she said, now, I mean, these same kids, right? She's grown up with them. She said, now I'm a better reader than any of them. Yeah. When it's not pushed and they pick it up on their own, sometimes they end up loving it versus yeah. feeling like it's a chore. Exactly. I have succeeded in the goal of having six kids that love books. And I mean, that's, that's saying a lot when, you know, two of them would be labeled in the school system. They would be labeled as, as learning disabled. So yes. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll hear more about Kathy's successes. If you would like to see your business grow, then contact us at The Luminous Mind for advertising space on theluminousmind.net or on the podcast, The Luminous Mind Podcast. Welcome back to The Luminous Mind. So what are some successes that you've seen through homeschooling and mentoring other people? Okay, well, homeschooling successes are day-by-day victories, for sure. You know, seeing your kids, the light bulb go on, I, I see those as being successful. I also, you know, see, I've talked about my, my oldest son a couple of times because it was such a challenge to have him first. He didn't read until he was 12 which is way outside of the the range of normal, even for people who are less rigid. But he uh, is about to graduate from college and he speaks fluent Russian. Wow. And he's a, you know, a stand up kind of guy that that values, uh, values duty and values family. So I consider those successes as far as, as far as successes in, in my mentoring, I would say the ones that are most fulfilling to me are when I when I help somebody overcome a challenge that is keeping them from their potential. And I know that's really, really broad, but it really can look like a wide variety of things. Sometimes I'm working with a youth and their struggle is to, you know, keep their motivation up or to manage their time or to gain a skill that has seemed hard for them. So sometimes it looks like that. A lot of times I, I mentor a lot of adults and a lot of times it has to do with helping, helping them realize that what they saw as a limitation was really just, uh, you know, an old script that they had going on from, from whatever experiences that have happened in their lives. And so it's interesting because <laughs> I, I do a lot of life coaching and that wasn't what I started out trying to accomplish. But I started to find out, just as I said earlier about public speaking, a lot of people have, you know, this intense fear of it. It's not about teaching the techniques. I mean, that actually can be done pretty easily. It's more often this, you know, getting over the belief that nobody wants to hear what you have to say. The message inside of you isn't worth hearing. Okay. So it's the same kind of thing thing with like mentoring other mentors. Sometimes they don't think that they're enough that they have what it takes to, you know, mentor this class. I'm a trainer for LEMI, which is the Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. And we train mentors to, to teach scholar projects, 
which are classes, but they're they're more than classes because they're kind of all encompassing in terms of all the academic areas. And yes, I do have to teach them how to teach the class, right? I do have to teach them, you know, the nuts and bolts of, of the curriculum, if you will. But often the more important thing I'm teaching them is the belief that they are enough, that they have what it takes to really help their students take the next steps in their lives. And that's what I find to be the most fulfilling successes that I have is when I help somebody overcome those kind of self-limiting thoughts and attitudes. That's great. And with mentorship, I kind of want to throw in to be a great mentor. I think you need to, first of all, be a good listener. And every class that you mentor takes on a life of its own, depending on what the students, you know, where they're at and their own individual needs. Would you agree with that or... Absolutely. I've had six different groups of kids taking the same class. It's called Quest Leadership and Thinking class really is the best way to describe it. And absolutely, the dynamics of the group are different with each group. And so so are the needs. And so I'm never a slave to my curriculum. And I don't care if that's in my home or in my classroom. I'm never a slave to my curriculum. I consider it a tool that I use to help them along their journey. Okay, great. So what are some personal habits that help to make you successful? Well, the ability to focus my efforts on the project at hand, I think, has been has been very helpful. And also being able to juggle, I guess, a wide variety of different hats. Every parent wears multiple hats and those change at different times, you know, which ones are most needful. But I think that, that ability to do that has been probably my strongest suit. So learning flexibility. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. We have to be, we have to be flexible and we have to be in tune with what's, you know, what, what the real needs are. Cause sometimes you, you can be distracted by academics. Quite honestly, you can think that the math is more important when sometimes it's not, it's the relationship. Yes, exactly. And maybe if you build that relationship, some of the learning difficult subjects like math will come later. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Yeah, and, and understanding their their own thinking styles is is part of that. If if you have a right brain child that's really creative, chances are they're going to be slower on that math on those math concepts. They get those things, they understand those things later. Great. So what is the one thing that you're doing with your students that you're most excited about or with your mentors in general? Wow, that's a really tough question because there's just so many things that I'm excited about. I'm currently leading, I'm helping to lead, there's three of us, a group of students to Europe. So I'm pretty darn excited about that. That would be really fun. I'm teaching a, I'm teaching an online webinar series for because the students are from all over the country to pair them because I know the first time I went I wasn't really prepared so so that's one thing I'm really excited about currently right this minute but I'm I'm pretty much always excited about whatever I'm teaching. <laughs> <laughs> well that's great. So what are some of your long-term goals? For me personally? Yes. 
Well, I want to continue to have impact. I'm, as I said, fortunate to be able to have my profession be the thing that I love, which is helping people want a great education and to have the skills to actually set those brush fires of freedom. So I want to continue doing that. And as my children are aging out, I have my third one turning 18 this month, actually. It's getting a little easier to do that. I have more freedom. When your kids are little, you don't necessarily have the time, the money, or the mental space to do that. So I do a lot of traveling. I'm, I'm doing uh, three conferences in the next two months. I'm excited about those. Um, so my long-term goals are just, I guess, to do more of the same, keep on inspiring people to be fighters for freedom. So what is some advice or encouragement you would give somebody who's just starting out, either mentors or parents? Well, I've, I've alluded to it already, but my main piece of advice is that you are enough. We have a, a tendency, especially women, to feel that we're inadequate. And the fact of the matter is that you have life experience and you have things that you've learned about and you have things that you're excited about. Even if you don't know everything, you know something. And that something is a gift that you're giving to your students, that you're giving to your children. And I just don't believe that we're randomly placed together, that our children are some random accident of nature. I think they came to us for a reason. And when we believe that, when we really believe that in, you know, in our core, then we're going to know that we are enough and we have something to give, even if we don't have everything to give. And of course, nobody does. Even if we have don't have everything, we have something to give. Well, and I, I really think that some of the best teachers are teachers who are a little humble and maybe have more of an attitude that we're all learning together versus somebody who feels like the expert in something and is there to just spew out, you know, information. Would you agree with that or? Absolutely. That's definitely part of mentoring because a teacher or a professor does that, right? They have the content, you are required to learn it, and they evaluate whether or not you succeeded. And so mentoring isn't that. Yes, we do have content to share, but I, I assure you that you will be more successful in getting them to learn that content when they ask for it. So <laughs> to keep your own education going, I think is vital. I actually personally would die if I weren't learning. I just, I, I feel like that's the, uh, that's the legal drug there, the epiphanies that you get as you learn new things. But we're continually learning, but that doesn't mean we don't already have a store of, of content and stories and abilities that we can share with, with our kids. Great. So do you have a favorite book or resource that you'd like to share with our audience? Wow. That's also another one of those, you know, bring it down to one thing. I love TJ Ed philosophy and I'm, and I'm grateful to Oliver and Rachel DeMille for all they've done to, you know, develop it and get it out there. So, I mean, there's certainly plenty of resources there. I think that the resource that I most often am recommending to people is actually about education. So it's a book called Thou Shall Prosper. It's by Daniel Lappin. He's a Jewish rabbi and a businessman. And he's basically taken all the, you know, thousands of years of Jewish wisdom about prosperity and put them into 10 commandments. 
And the reason why I love this book is because it's not a get rich quick kind of book. It's not all about making a ton of money. It's about living a life that is prosperous in all ways. And that through your business, you are contributing, you are making a moral and, and valuable contribution to society. So anyway, it was probably one of the most impactful things in my own life when I read that book. And I just feel like I'm being mentored by him. I'm a super big fan of Stephen Covey. All of his works are, are well worth reading and you know integrating into your life. I, I'm the kind of person that recommends books to people in the grocery store line. So <laughs> yeah, it's hard for me to just narrow it down to one, but I tend to read a lot and I love books that explain how things work. You know, like Malcolm Gladwell is one of my favorite authors. Atul Gawande is another. I don't know. There's just a lot of, a lot of resources. I I can't narrow down to one. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So, and with the book, Thou Shall Prosper, he talked a, a little bit about having a service-oriented heart and how when we work to serve others, you do prosper naturally. Right. And that community of, of people exchanging, basically, you know, when you're in business and he, he, he recommends that you think of yourself as a business, even if you have a job, that you think of yourself as a business with one customer. And that's very liberating. Remember, I'm all about freedom. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if right now you only have one customer, that's okay. The point is, is that you can get more customers or you can get better customers. And so that orientation of being a contributing member of society, I think is part of us being free. Great. How would you like to see the world change in the future? Well, let's see. I, I think that your questions are, are very insightful. The, uh, the changes that, are, that really, I think, are most fundamentally needed. Oh, there's so many, but I think the, the one that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to key in as the most fundamentally needful is the ability to take responsibility for yourself. Oh, I like that one. You know, that's in everything. That's in taking out the garbage. That's in, in being able to, you know, own your own education and, and not consider yourself a pawn in somebody else's scheme and not allowing yourself to be a, be a pawn in somebody else's scheme. You know, having that, that ability to just see yourself as responsible for the life that you, that you live. Well, in, in my own personal experience, when I finally take responsibility for, you know, maybe a wrong that I've done or take responsibility in, in an area of my life, that's when I see the biggest change and growth from myself. So I definitely would back that up. I like taking responsibility. Yeah, it's super powerful. So before we say goodbye, would you give us some parting words of advice or maybe a favorite quote and then how we can connect with you? Absolutely. So one of my favorite quotes is by Winston Churchill. And he said, to every man, there comes a time when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered the chance to do a very special thing, unique to him and fitted to his talents. What a tragedy if that moment comes and finds him unprepared or unqualified for what would have been his finest hour. Oh, I really like that. Who is that by again? That's Winston Churchill. And that's the corollary to the Adams quote I, I shared earlier, because if we do prepare the tireless, irate minority with both the ability to see freedom and the, and the skills to set the brush fires of freedom, then they are going to be ready 
for their finest hour. And if we don't, then they may not. Now, granted, they they may. It's hard, you know. It's not like a an all or nothing kind of a thing. They could they could be prepared on on their own. But I I do think we we help students when we stretch them and when we give them what I call crucible experiences that grow them in ways that, you know, reading a book can't. And those kinds of experiences take some effort. I'm about to watch four of my students do a Supreme Court simulation where they'll be arguing Roe v. Wade, two of them on each side, and they'll be in basically a shark tank while lawyers, you know, attorneys, practicing attorneys are asking them questions to defend their position and to defend their their argumentation. It's a kind of growth experience that can't come through reading a book about the Supreme Court. So I think we prepare our students for anything when we give them opportunities like that. I'm not saying that that's the only one, but opportunities like that that help them to grow and stretch themselves in ways that they, they couldn't even imagine. So when you take those two quotes together, it sort of encompasses you know, who I am and what I do. My website is unleashingyourvoice.com. I can be reached at unleashingyourvoice at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook. I have a page called Unleashing Your Voice. And, and my name is Kathy Malore. And you can certainly send me a friend request if I've said anything that sparked your interest. I mostly post snarky things about, you know, life. So... <laughs> Oh, and then, you know, of course, all the, you know, wow, the amazing things my kids are doing kind of stuff. So, well, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. It was my pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Rebecca. Great. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. If you want to be a fire starter like Kathy, please go to our website, theluminousmind.net, click on the fire tab, and schedule a time today. Also, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter and Google+. Subscribe to our YouTube channel as well as iTunes and Stitcher. Help us continue to light minds on fire and change the paradigm of education.